there aren't that many hills I'd be willing to die on. This is one of them. This is about protecting children. And it's very dear to my heart because I had a really rough adolescence and I have thought about it. And I know that if I had the same adolescence that I had, but in this environment where the way that people are talking about gender was the way it is today, I for sure would be one of these kids threatening suicide to get my testosterone and my double mastectomy. I would be that kid. I have all the markers of being that kid. So yeah, it's dear to my heart. I wanna protect these kids. You must be some kind of therapist. I am some kind of therapist, and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. Welcome back to You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. Today, I have a very special opportunity to talk with the one and only Helen Joyce. Um, Many of you are probably already familiar with her work. Uh, She's the author of the book Trans, When Ideology Meets Reality, and the director of advocacy at sexmatters.org. She's currently taking a leave of absence from The Economist, where she was a journalist since 2005. And of course, I would have loved to interview Helen under any circumstances, but our circumstances for today's interview are a little unique. So Helen, can you tell how we ended up having this conversation today? Well, Stephanie, as you know, you reached out to me a while ago to say that maybe we could talk, but we hadn't actually arranged anything. And then, coincidentally, um, while we at Sex Matters, which is an advocacy organisation about the law, the legal status and the societal status of biological sex and how much that matters, uh, we have been fighting a ban on so-called gender identity conversion therapy here. So it sounds great, but it really isn't a great thing, as you know. And then while we were thinking and we were hearing from people who were working in this fight with us that what parliamentarians need to do is to understand that what sounds good isn't really as good as it sounds, you tweeted that you had just uh, been freed from this like vexatious complaint. And I thought, that's perfect. This is the story that people in England need to hear in order to do what they need to do to protect children without getting you know, swept up in a bandwagon uh, thing, which just, you know, voting for something that sounds good, but actually will do more harm. And so I emailed you and said, Stephanie, tell me your story. And you said, yes, okay, on my platform. So this is weird. I'm on your platform and I'm interviewing <laughs> you. <laughs> but we can do it both ways. Well, I love it. So we'll use this interview for you must be some kind of therapist podcast. You'll use it for whatever you want to use it for. It'll be an opportunity for us to get to know each other and talk about whatever comes up, but also an opportunity for me to share the story. And what better purpose for sharing it than to help with what you're doing in the UK? That's brilliant. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm so glad we were able to make this time. Um, Mm -hmm. So on your podcast, tell me about you and what you do. (laughs) Oh gosh. So I've been a therapist since 2013 and licensed since 2016. I've 
had a pretty typical trajectory for what a person's career looks like in my field where right out of grad school, I worked at nonprofits doing really kind of difficult, more social work type therapy, you know, inpatient setting, and then working with youth who are in the foster care system with wraparound services, um, but also individual couples, family, adolescent therapy. And I have many passions and interests in the field. It's always evolved, but ironically, uh, and I, I say this ironically because of where things stand now, I always had a heart for the teen girls. Um, I always thought I'd be good at working with them and found that I, I generally was because I survived my own adolescence, which was very rough. And I figured if I could do that, um, then I could believe that other girls could survive their adolescences as well. So working with youth has always been a part of the picture and in various settings from nonprofits to then, you know, working at a company and then eventually starting my own private practice two years ago. And so I've been in the field while the, what we could call gender craze has escalated. And like most therapists, you know, we, we work with people one-on-one -on -one or maybe in a family or small group and we're not sociologists, right? We're not necessarily mapping broader populations. We figure that what's showing up in our office is not a general sampling of the population. In fact, it's it's important to do that because if you don't have that barrier, if you allow yourself to think what I'm seeing in my office is a sampling of the general population, well, then that can contribute to burnout because you're, you're hearing a lot of really hard stories sometimes, right? So it's actually important for our mental health to remember, you know, I'm just getting exposure to these really hard stories because of the nature of the work I do. Um, so that said, it can be hard for us to kind of lack perspective on general social trends. And we also assume that people trust us because the people we're seeing in our offices are the ones who do trust us and who have a positive view of what it is to seek counseling. Have you always been in the same state? You see, you're, you're licensed by a state, aren't you? So it's one yeah, so, licensing um, authority. Good question. So I started in California and then moved to Oregon, uh, kind of at an unusual point in the process. So I went to grad school in California. My first job outside of grad school was also in California. So that's when I started accruing my MFT internship hours. Uh, I believe they're now called associate. I could be wrong about that. Um but then I decided to move to Oregon while I was still working on that. And so there's, you know, it's a bit clunky moving from one state to another because some of my hours didn't count because they were in the wrong category. But, you know, I continued working on an internship up in Oregon, finished my license in Oregon. I've been here ever since. So both states, but most of my professional experience has been in Oregon. And when did you first start seeing girls or, you know, people in general who were bringing in gender issues that maybe you didn't feel you'd been trained for or that seemed to you unusual in some way? Yeah, these things, they, they definitely kind of catch you by surprise the first few times you see them. And, and as a therapist, you're also seeing people at different points in their story, right? So there were, you know, and I'm going to be very vague to protect people's confidentiality, of course, of course. but- you know, there were some young women I worked with who had, you know, chronic depression and anxiety because of family issues and health, maybe some genetic factors, you know, oftentimes a long history of loneliness and isolation. 
and social awkwardness. What seemed to me at the time to be out of the blue started saying, I think I'm trans or I think I'm non-binary now. In retrospect, now I know that that's not out of the blue at all. But I think I think where a lot of clinicians get thrown off when they're seeing this for the first or second or 10th time, if they haven't really done their research, is that therapists don't know where kids are getting these ideas, right? So it seems like it's coming from a place where this kid must have put a lot of thought into it. Another thing that I was noticing around the same time is I was really impressed with young people's emotional vocabularies, their, their psychological terms. And, you know, for a while I thought this was a sign of maturity. I thought, wow, these are really special young people who are gravitating towards me. I'm so glad that I have the opportunity to work with them. They have all these terms, all this insight, you know, and it, then I learned more about how the social environment that the kids were in, especially online, was just fetishizing psychological terminology, right? And so they were just speaking the language of their peers. But, you know, I started seeing a rise in this in, you know, maybe 2017 or so. Prior to that, I will say the first time I ever had experience with a um, quote-unquote transgender person uh, in the mental health system was back in California around 2014 when I was working in a residential setting. We were helping uh, primarily 18 to 24-year-olds with severe and persistent mental illness. So we're talking like schizoaffective disorder, schizophrenia, severe bipolar disorder. Um, most of our patients there were um, – our facility was basically a step down from full hospitalization. Um, so – it, it was a pretty intensive program, and we had a young person who was male and very large and very male, <laughs> um, and, and there was very little that was even feminine presenting about this person, um, but who had some kind of psychosis. I don't know all what was going on because I wasn't this person's primary counselor. I was just responsible for admissions and for kind of day-to-day stuff. But um, I remember there being some internal debate over where to place this person because rooms were shared by sex. And because he identified as a she, the director insisted that we place him with a female. The female he was placed with um, was a young woman with complex trauma from, you know, childhood sexual abuse. And she ran away. Oh, dear. That was my first exposure to where this ideology can lead. I think that that was mishandled and also kind of tragically predictable. I mean, what do you think is going to happen if you take someone who's already having a really rough go, you know, enough to need to be hospitalized, enough to need to be in an inpatient facility, and then you tell her that we're here to help you heal Come, come here and get better. We're going to teach you life skills. We're going to help you get on your feet. Oh, and by the way, here's this 300-pound male who you have to go to bed in the same room as. I mean, who would and stick around she. for that? Yeah. Yeah. Goodness yeah. me. Uh, yeah. Wow. So did that sort of prime you maybe when you first started seeing in your own practice people who didn't identify as their sex or was it just not related to you? I don't think I connected the dots so much at first because that was kind of a unique presentation. I, I wouldn't say that I had anyone 
after that who really fit the description of either the trans-identified male or the um, the female who was, in this case, a victim and who didn't receive proper care in that setting. I don't think I had any clients who were similar to either of those in their presentation. You know, what I started to see was either young women who I'd been working with for a while on, you know, something like social anxiety. Then they started saying I'm trans or I'm non-binary. And then there was kind of a phase of my career where I got this influx of people who were already identifying as trans and many who had socially or medically transitioned. And the way that I received many of these folks was from a clinician who was leaving the group practice and who viewed me as kind of the most progressive colleague, the one who would be the best fit for, you know, her trans clients as well as her, you know, gay couples and polyamorous people and people with sexual kinks and fetishes. And I think that she was partially reading me right because I am very open and progressive and I'd done work with non-monogamous couples and, you know, always been supportive of gay rights and so forth. But I think also there was partly some projection into how she was reading me. And then I felt like I needed to live up to that expectation. I went to one of those gender-affirming care trainings, and that really caught me off guard too, partly because the company I was working for was more conservative than I was at the time. Um, They were run by three kind of Christian, conservative, older white males, and this being Portland, this company was kind of a little mainstream for being Portland. And so it surprised me that they even did this, but in retrospect, I don't know that they knew what they were signing up for when they put on so the training. So what was it? Was it a residential or a weekend or what? Oh, I'm sorry. Um, this training was just like a, I don't know, like a two or four hour or something. Okay. Um, yeah, this was a whole different phase of my career where, you know, we have ongoing continuing education units. And this was this was framed as just the kind of level one training and that this was – we were being taught what the new standard of care was. And if you wanted to be a good person and do the right thing by, you know, people with gender dysphoria, then you would go on to the next training where you were taught how to write the WPATH affirmation letters and all of that. And for a while there, I felt this like guilt about not wanting to go to the next level training. And, you know, in retrospect, I can say thank goodness because I I feel guilty enough that I followed the affirmation model in the settings where I did, but at least I never wrote anybody a letter recommending that they get a mastectomy. You know, I was just there with people as their therapist while they were going through some of those interventions or afterward, and I saw the limitations of the affirmation model. So t- so what sort of thing did they tell you at this course, and roughly when was this as well? I wish that I had the materials. I, I, I've looked through my files like, where is the packet that they gave me at that training? I'm guessing it was probably 2018, 2019. And it was, like I said, it was framed as this is the new standard of care for gender dysphoria. And, you know, most people attending this think gender dysphoria, haven't seen a lot of it, starting to see a little bit of it sure, I should learn what the standard of care is. And it was no different from how we would have these trainings on, you know, go hear what a medical doctor has to say about ADHD in the brain. Okay, great. I'll take this training. Um, My company's putting it on for free. I'll get some CEUs out of it, learn a thing or two. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was expected that you should attend if you could. And 
There were, you know, 100, 200 people. I mean, this was a 300-plus employee organization. And I, it, it's taken me a while to digest what happened there because it, it's actually taken me years to process everything that I've taken in about gender and arrive to where I am. But at the time, it was my first time hearing these messages that you and anyone who's been studying this issue are well familiar with, the dead daughter or the live son message, right? And we were basically being taught that, you know, gender dysphoria is innate, that it's so terrible that kids have to suffer this feeling of being born in the wrong body, and that new research is discovering that you can save lives by rescuing children from the distress of puberty as early as possible. And that the earlier, the better, because, you know, if they have to go through puberty, it's going to be so traumatic for them. They're going to feel so trapped in the wrong body. And really, this is the best thing that you can do, right, is these poor gender dysphoric children who were born in the wrong body. You know, now we have puberty blockers, hooray. We have social affirmation, social transitioning. This is exactly what you should be doing so that these kids are treated with the respect and compassion that they deserve. Um, that that was the nature of the training, right? And so it was like, well, now, now you're learning that there's these puberty blockers and hormones and surgeries, and there's this thing called the WPATH standards of care, and this is approximately what it says. And if you're a good therapist, you're going to learn more about these standards of care. And I'm guessing a lot of people in the room were just kind of a little bit shocked, but didn't know what to do because you you don't go into these kind of trainings prepared to hear this sort of thing. So what's strange about it? Like like for someone who's not a professional, what's mm -hmm. different about that than what you would normally hear? One is that the link with the medical system going kind of beyond uh, medical necessity and minimum necessary care, right? So the standard of care generally for how therapists interact with um, doctors and psychiatrists is that we're supposed to know just a little bit about how they work with mental health conditions. We should know when to refer. So if, you know, if a patient is having an adjustment disorder and they've been sad for two weeks because their dog died, you know, do they need an antidepressant? You probably should help the patient understand why an antidepressant is not necessary. If, you know, if someone has panic disorder and it's severely impacting their quality of life and they say, should I talk to my doctor? You can say, here's what to expect if you talk to your doctor. Here's what I, here are the symptoms that you've told me that I think are significant for your doctor to know. We're also trained to learn to recognize signs that someone should be evaluated for various medical conditions that can create what look like mental health conditions. So for instance, sleep apnea, you know, a person with untreated sleep apnea can have all the symptoms of depression, anxiety, ADHD, because their brain isn't replenishing at night. Same thing with common nutrient deficiencies, iron, vitamin D, B vitamins, you know, all of these things. Oh, thyroid issues too. I've actually, I got to hear years later, I had a accidental run-in with a former patient years later. And she told me, hey, do you remember when I was telling you how I felt this and that and you said I should have my thyroid checked? I got it checked and that was the problem causing my mood instability. And now I've had this thyroid treatment and I feel so much better. You know, so there's reasons that we're trained as therapists how to work with the medical professionals so that we can say, hmm, you know, that kind of sounds like it might be related to one of three medical conditions that your doctor could check for. So why don't you talk to your doctor about that, right? Now, this instead, it was more of a, 
more of a conflation of our role with the medical system, um, saying that we should make these recommendations and that we should that, that we're in a gatekeeping role, right? And that the best thing for us to do, given our gatekeeping role and the power in our hands, is to usher people through the system. So that's one thing. And it's also, you know, normally mental distress, you don't jump to the most extreme medical treatment for it, right? If someone, like I said, if, if someone's having some normal grief or loss or adjustment difficulties or situational anxiety or things like that, what you do is you you normalize those feelings and you teach coping skills. Um, you, you help a person get a sense of, is this something that could be fleeting that I could learn to manage? Um, you know, I also model for people all the time if if their lifestyle is unhealthy and they're expecting to be in perfect mental health I'll say you know if I ate and slept and hydrated or not um and moved or not the way that you did I would feel every bit as miserable as you right I I view the health of the mind and body as very related and so part of our job is to set reasonable expectations for mm. people about how mental and physical health are connected so what's strange about this is that they're telling you that something as ambiguous and, you know, for most of us pretty novel at that time around, like I said, 2017, people aren't seeing a ton of this in their practices yet, you know, but that something as um, amorphous as a problem with one's gender identity in a population as malleable as youth would require such extreme medical interventions. That's novel. Um, and then the, the affirmation piece as well, right? Because it's normally part of our job with how we treat anything to be curious and ask questions. And it's not about disbelieving what our patients are telling us about their experience, but it's that their way of framing and understanding their experience is based on their limited perspective. They can't, you know, necessarily see outside of their own brain. That's what our extra brain is there for, right? And and they're not necessarily trained in, in psychology, nor should they have to be. So it is our job to help people get that outside perspective and think through their problems. And oftentimes it's good news that people don't have to go to the lengths they thought they had to go through. You know, for instance, um, there's been times that I've helped someone discover that there was someone they really needed to cut out of their life. Like this person is no bueno. But there have been other times that, you know, maybe someone's come to therapy thinking this person in my life is toxic. Well, it turns out that person's actually not, you know, they're not a sociopath. This is a normal human problem, and you can adjust your relationship by just tightening up your boundaries in a couple of areas. Being a more assertive communicator, turns out you can maintain a happy, healthy, maybe slightly more distant relationship with this person. Um, you know, there's been times that I help someone make the decision to quit a job. There's also been times I help them make a decision to change something about how they were relating to their current job, and then they didn't have to turn their whole life mm -hmm. upside down, right? So- it's good news that in therapy, we help people become less black and white, less rigid, and not feel the need to go to extremes to take care of their problem. That doesn't mean there's never a uh, cause for making some kind of big change, but we help people see other options, other possibilities, and we help them understand kind of what's driving their 
desire to make a certain change. Oftentimes when we think that we want a particular outcome or we think we want to engage in a certain behavior, um, it's about what does that represent to us, right? So Mm. if someone says, I want to make a million dollars, well, okay, well, for most people that's, you know, it's a lot of money um, and, you know, it doesn't come without making a lot of sacrifice. So what does a million dollars represent to you? Well, if you unpack that enough, if you keep exploring and asking questions, that money represents a fantasy of feeling free mm. and relaxed and at ease. Mm-hmm, okay, mm-hmm. good news. We just figured out you want to feel free and relaxed and at ease. <laughs> Guess what? You don't need a million dollars, which is good <laughs> news because a million dollars is hard. But I mean, I'm but seeing the things... analogies here, you know, I'm yes. just, like, you know, right. the analogies with, with saying you want to be the opposite sex or you are the opposite sex. I mean, this seems obvious. How is this not obvious to people who are within yeah. the therapy profession? And this is that, the response to that question of what what's so different about the way that yeah. we're being taught to address gender, right? It's like, oh, we're being taught that the patient's self-diagnosis is correct, that it requires extreme novel medical procedures we've never heard of before, that we should say, yes, you should go to that extreme end that you just decided, not that there are other ways to identify what you're wanting out of that fantasy. And maybe there's something a lot more accessible, a lot less permanent, that something that's a lot less work that would yes. give you the same results of alleviating your distress and meeting your needs. Gosh, there are a few other reasons. Um, I'm sure we'll. You know, I'm sure we'll think of them as we go. Maybe like yeah. you'll say, "Oh, there's another difference." Yeah. So y- you you thought something was strange about it, but these were the standards of care. You had done your training. Did you start to put that into mm-hmm. practice straight away, or what? Yeah. So I mean, I often think about the emperor's new clothes as a good analogy here, and you know, part of how this ideology is so insidious is that it's. It's presented as this is what you do and say and believe if you're a good person, right? Mm. And who doesn't want to be a good person? And especially if you lump in like gay rights, well, this is, you know, these are sexual minorities. So who doesn't want to be supportive of sexual minorities? And I think therapists particularly were a very empathetic and agreeable and conscientious bunch and those can be exploited. So yeah, I did start putting these standards into practice. And I think part of my thought process too was, you know, this doesn't intuitively seem right. This seems kind of shocking, but what do I know? Right. These people must know something I don't know. Now, years later, I'm at a point in my career where I can say, no, I know something they don't know. And that's why I'm here to talk about, because I've done my research and I've come to some conclusions that are well-researched. But yeah, I mean, I felt a moral obligation to do right by the quote LGBTQ community, which is another misnomer because now I understand that that is not a unified community. That is a deeply divided community that wants a divorce. But, uh, you know, at the time I just, you know, I had a lot of clients who identified as queer because this is Portland and many of those were, you know, just straight up lesbians. Right. But I, became, you know, one of the kind of quote LGBTQ friendly therapists. And so I I had a range of, you know, people within that that lumped category. And this included, you know, people kind of in various stages of quote unquote transitioning socially or medically, people who had transitioned. And I even um, you know, when the company updated their forms for 
you know, people who wanted to change how their name or gender or pronouns were listed in our medical system. The company sent out a form for updating that. And I sent back a form corrected. I was like, no, sex assigned at birth is the correct term here. And, you know, like all of that. I was Goodness. I was really trying to be good, you know? When did you start to, when did the cracks appear? Well, I think the cracks were always there, but I noticed sort of a, a, a stubborn, intractable neuroticism to the people that I worked with who were trans when we were trying to, you know, focus on anything but that, right? So people who are, you know, post-transition, um, living as the opposite sex, expecting to be affirmed as the opposite sex, and they're there for social anxiety or depression or OCD or whatever it is. If I do say so myself, I am a very effective therapist. And when I was working for that company, I actually had, um, there was a way of measuring that um, because this company really wanted to do everything by the books and appear legitimate in the eyes of insurance companies and all of that. And so they had patients fill out a form every visit that had them rate some kind of standard mental health symptoms on a five-point Likert scale. And... Uh, these forms were then processed and, you know, linked anonymously with my clinician ID. And I had really high scores for patient improvement outcomes. I think the average score um, across the company was around a 0.8 on the scale. 0.5 meant effective. Uh, eight was 0.8 was like highly effective. My score was often over one. Um, mm -hmm. So I had a really high score within the company. Um, for how much improvement my patients showed. And that was very validating of my intuition and I could kind of match it with how I saw my patients getting better with whatever it was they were struggling with. I did not see trans identifying people getting better. I saw a, a rigidity and obsessiveness and a stubbornness to their neuroticism. And sometimes it felt like Maybe this is happening because we can't talk about the elephant in the room. Maybe this is happening because there's something going on in the body that's actually causing the nervous system to freak out, you know? Um, and so that was that was concerning. I, um, I also noticed the fixation on how one is externally perceived. It's just not... It's not good for mental health in general to put too much energy into that. You control the things you can control, right? Which is you think about how do I want to dress and groom and behave so that I'm presenting a version of myself to the world that I like and that I think will attract the kinds of people that I want to connect with. And, um, you know, aside from that, whatever, like not everyone's going to find me attractive or want to be my friend. And there are even going to be some people who are going to be downright jerks to me. And oh, well, right. You you have to develop a, a resilience and an inner ability to regulate your emotions, regardless of how other people perceive you, as well as to have realistic expectations about how people mm. are going to perceive you, right? Like I've you know, so for people who are really lonely and like maybe not good at approaching the opposite sex or whatever sex they're attracted to, you know, it's important to be able to kind of see yourself from the outside and think about, okay, well, if someone approached you like that, it would make you uncomfortable, right? So for, for mental health in general, 
Um, it's, it's not wise to be too hung up on things that you can't control and how other people mm. perceive you is one of those things. But I was noticing with trans identified people of all ages that there was so much emphasis on that, uh, so much emphasis on passing and freaking out about what if people think this or that about me. And that's just, that's a, that's a dead end. And then I, I noticed too that, and I'm just getting really practical with this stuff we all only have so much time, energy, and mental bandwidth in a day, week, month life. And there's an opportunity cost involved in everything, right? The more time you spend focused on your gender, um, whatever that means to you, the less time you're focused on literally anything else that you could be focused on, like getting a job or getting good grades or making friends or developing hobbies, getting good at something, achieving a goal. I mean, uh, all the things that are meaningful, that move you forward, build a sense of character and self-esteem and health. Time spent on gender is time not spent on that. And so I see this kind of emotional immaturity that shows up in, you know, 30-year-old quote-unquote trans people who are emotionally 15, because it's it's just such a time suck, if nothing else. So these were some of the concerns I was seeing. Um, I also felt like there was just a lot to unpack with some of the youth who were identifying this way that the ideology just really prevented us from unpacking, you know? And, like you and weren't things- allowed to use the language you wanted or you weren't allowed to ask things because you were told that that was transphobic or something. Well, internalized misogyny and homophobia, you know, and we know this from Lisa Lipman's studies of detransitioners. Those are real things. And, you know, the the trans-identified youth that I worked with, many of them, I think, did have, um, well, they were gay and they did have some sexist thoughts, but it was so wrapped up in the trans stuff that you couldn't talk about it. I, another concern I have for youth is that I think there's this kind of epidemic of narcissism where energy that would normally be going outward toward being interested in other people, like having crushes and wanting to date and flirt and make out, all this stuff that's exciting when you're a teenager, that stuff gets introverted and trejected and it becomes all about who who am I as a sexual or gender identity, right? And, and I see, I mean, when I first got into working with teen girls, I was sure that we were going to spend a lot of time talking about crushes. It's like, I that's vanished. I wow. mean, the, the, the energy that used to go toward having feelings for other people and being nervous about that and excited about that has gone toward having feelings about who am I as a gender identity. And so when I think about, you know, these, what I would call lesbians, young, socially awkward lesbians, making it about their gender identity, it's like there's an avoidance of the real vulnerability of coming to terms with being a lesbian. And the reality of being a lesbian, it's it's hard. Your dating pool is a lot smaller. I mean, even if you live in a perfectly accepting society, even if there's no homophobia, just statistically, you have a smaller dating pool. And mm-hmm. I hear about this from the parents I'm working with now, because I'm not working with adolescents right now. It's too risky. You know, just from mm. the parents I'm working with, uh, talking about their kids, it's like, yeah, some of them are just 
lesbians who are being taught this gender ideology that's so dangerous because it makes them think that their dating pool is bigger than it actually is. You know, so much of Gen Z identifies as LGBTQ, but statistically it's just not possible because the rates of, you know, what portion of a population is straight, gay, lesbian, bisexual, those rates are going to be pretty consistent because you you can't change your sexual orientation. So, But yes. there are people who are calling themselves bisexual, pansexual, this, that, and the other, who are really just heterosexual. So then you have girls, poor girls, right? Poor girls who are actual lesbians, and they're confused because people aren't sending accurate messages about what it is to be a lesbian. You know, the fact mm. that you're you're going to have lots of crushes on straight girls and get really confused and you're going to misread friendship as romance and you're going to hope in your wish and and now these girls are thinking well that girl I like is dating boys who look like me and so if I'm a boy she's going to want to date me too right and it's like oh you poor thing no you can't trans the gay away you can't make a straight girl like you just because you call yourself a boy like honey you have a smaller dating pool and you get to you, you need to get to know some other lesbians and accept mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. you know so basically all all the things that we should be talking about with young sexual minority youth were not, right? And and same thing goes with the real causes of their social awkwardness and their discomfort with their bodies. Um, All of that just gets eaten up by the trans identification, and then you can't talk about it. And all you're supposed to do is just affirm that that is who they are, and you can't explore, and it just really hinders what you can do as a therapist. Now, I'm talking from my experience before I stopped working with adolescents or my experience with people who are over the age of 18 or my experience with um, parents. There's a lot more I could say, but I'm, I'm sure you want to jump in but, here. So yes, you, you started to notice that they weren't getting better, that there were things you badly wanted to talk to them about that you just couldn't because this trans identification was getting in the way and that they seemed emotionally illiterate, but that was like a, a linguistic thing. It didn't seem to go any further than that. When did you start to think, I'm just not doing the right thing, I need to do something different, or was that not how it played out? For me, one very necessary step in freeing my mind was going into private practice, which happened to coincide with the pandemic. So right. I um, I worked for that company from 2016 to 2020. I decided in February of 2020 that I was going to start my private practice in June And I cared about my employer and my clients enough to give three months notice. If I'd just given one month notice, I would have been giving notice during the pandemic and maybe I would have changed my mind. But I actually gave notice in March right before it became clear that we were actually heading into a global pandemic. And then it was like, well, okay, this changes everything. But I already said I'm leaving this job. I already said I'm starting my private practice. So I guess I'm just going to do it. Turned out that leap of faith worked wonderfully for me because I started my private practice online without having to pay rent. Um, So that was actually kind of a welcome. And were you still working with kids then? I was, um, so I was working with a few minors, a few, um, you know, but they were getting close to 18. Um, Right. Right. And And was that a decision? Was that a decision to do with gender issues or law? I think subconsciously before I left the company, I was kind of slowing down on young people because a part of me was going 
there's something not right here and I haven't figured it out yet and I don't know exactly what I think. And um, and I, I think there were a few other cases I saw where, like without sharing too much information, there was someone who had a very terrible trauma history and no history of gender nonconformity um, who suddenly started identifying as trans. And, and that was one of those clear-cut, well, it was just so obvious to me that she didn't, just didn't feel safe being female. And I wanted to talk about that. But of course I couldn't, you know? So it was things like that, that um, I think subconsciously I became more hesitant to take on new adolescent mm -hmm. clients until I figured out what was going on. And can I ask about the legal framework in Oregon around then? Like at what point did any of the standards of care or anything like that really impact on what you could legally do? I don't think I thought too much about it while I was working at that company and following the normal standards of care. Um, but I'll, I'll kind of pick up on this transition to private practice because that was a part of it. Okay. Because I needed, I needed to get out of um, that social environment. And so for the last three months of that job, I worked at home anyway because it was the early stages of the pandemic, but I was also setting up my private practice in the meanwhile. And then I started working for myself exactly two years ago. It was June of 2020, and it was the first summer of the pandemic. So being the first summer of the pandemic, on the one hand, I was very busy because I was starting a private practice. Um, but on the other hand, I had a lot of free time on my hands because uh, we were all locked in. So I spent a lot of time gardening and a lot of time listening to podcasts. Mm. And I'm trying to think of where this started. It might have actually started with Dark Horse Podcast. I feel like there was some stuff going on prior to that, um, especially with regard to my changing views on race issues, um, which we're not going to get into today because that's a whole other can of worms. But um, I remember I started listening to Dark Horse Podcast that summer. Um, and at some point on Dark Horse Podcast, I, I heard them talk about Abigail Schreier. I read her book. I read Deborah So's book. Um, or saw, I don't know how to say her last name. Um, and I remember them talking about trans rights activists attempting to suppress the, the stories of detransitioners. Right. But, and that caught my attention because that might have been the first time I heard the term detransitioner. And I thought, I need to know about this. There's mm -hmm. something being suppressed here. There are people who were trans and then stopped that is validating some kind of spidey sense I've had, right, that I need to start hearing about this. So that's when I started listening to a lot of detransitioner interviews and, um, you know, reading and watching and listening. And the whole house of cards just came tumbling down. And then I could think clearly and I could think for myself again because I'm a good therapist. I've been doing my job a while and... I know a thing or two about psychology. I know a thing or two about adolescent development and trauma and misogyny and homophobia and social contagion and everything that's relevant to this issue. And suddenly I no longer had this group thing standing in my way of thinking clearly about what was really happening. So it was about two years ago that everything started to shift for me. And then it took until, it took kind of an incubation period of really only talking to a very small number of people and doing a lot of reading, watching, and listening before I was ready to come out 
and join the public conversation. And I did that in September of 2021. That's when I joined Twitter, started I blogging. remember. <laughs> I remember. I remember. I think I probably saw your first tweet on the topic because those things, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because as soon as somebody else says, you know, the, the experience we've all had, it's the mm -hmm. same for everybody. Everybody thinks there's something wrong here. It, everybody thinks I must be missing something. Mm -hmm. Everyone's quiet for a while while they're gathering data. And then suddenly you're sure it all comes tumbling down, like you say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. I remember. I'm, I'm pretty sure I remember at least very early when you said that, you well. know, I'm here and this is the way I think about things. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, did you think about the legal situation then or was that just still not on the cards at all because anyway you transitioned to mostly working with adults? I think I was, I was worried not so much about any particular laws at first, but um, my, my first concern was I don't want my patients to find me but I can't not be online talking about this stuff, right? So there were a few patients that I, I found their social medias and I blocked them because I didn't want them just stumbling across my tweets with you know some trans rights activist recirculating my tweet as a turf. And I didn't want that happening, um, but you never know, right? But, but I also kind of had to take my chances. So my main concern was for client welfare, not in the sense of, am I going to get into some kind of legal trouble, but is some someone I've worked with going to have some kind of crisis of faith when they discover that their therapist who they thought that highly of, who they thought, you know, respected and understood them for being their true authentic self, um, actually didn't. And I was more worried about the impact that would have on their psychology because mm. ultimately if there was somebody who identified as trans, who had socially or medically transitioned, who felt that I helped them with something, you know, help help them with a family dynamic, helped them with getting their schoolwork done, wh whatever it was. You know, ultimately, I want the best for that person. And I am very worried about what's going to happen with people who do regret their transitions. But if there are people who, you know, I, I, I want the best for my patients, whether that means they detransition someday or whether that means that they stay the way they are. I, I was more concerned for just how it might impact them to discover that I had written any of this stuff, but I was hoping that if it were to happen, that they would feel that they had a strong enough relationship with me that they could come to me and talk about it, which I did have reason to believe that my relationships with my patients were really, you know, strong relationships um, and that they could somehow grapple with that cognitive dissonance, you know, that, that they might have the maturity to assume that Maybe I wasn't saying this because I was secretly a bigot who they never should have trusted all along. Maybe it actually learned something, you know, maybe maybe I had another patient who had been traumatized by the trans healthcare system, right? So um, none of that ever happened as far as I know. As far as I know, none of the um, trans people I've worked with discovered online anything I had to say um, about the issue. Um, and as far as I know, all of the people I've worked with who are not trans identified themselves, but who are very supportive of trans rights because they believe the current liberal narrative, um, you know, they're, they're in therapy to talk to me to some, about something else. As far as I know, none of them have discovered my work on this issue either. And I would be willing to have those conversations with them if they did, but I'm not here to push an agenda on my clients. I'm here to do my job, which is to help them get better. And I understand when I have clients who have what is now a very different worldview from mine on these issues, 
I'm able to see that just as I would see a religious difference. But I think I'm getting a little bit off topic here. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's it's no, it's it's very useful because that's a good framing that you know you don't have to agree with your patient on everything. You're you're seeking to mm-hmm. to help them with something. And so your private practice went well. You you got you know you got yeah. clients. You were working happily with them. The transition worked well for you. But and, then what um, happened? Actually, you you asked when I became concerned about the legal issue. Um, mm-hmm. And I want to finish answering that. I just remembered. It was when the trans rights activists started coming after me. Actually, um, mm. because I I was following what was happening in Canada, and I was. I was worried about the direction things were heading there. And I I had looked at the laws in Oregon. And I, I mean, I specifically looked at the laws in Oregon, reviewing those governing my profession, because I wanted to make sure that anything I was saying or doing was fine with the law. And I couldn't find anything that, I, I couldn't find anything at first that gave me reason to feel scared for myself. I but I was looking at what was happening in Canada. Um and then when the trans rights activists started coming after me and accusing me of doing conversion therapy just because I am a therapist who's talking online about the harms of gender ideology and medicalization, somehow somewhere in that process, I think one of the trans rights activists linked to an article where I, I had to go a very circuitous route to find that Basically, even though there was nothing written into Oregon law exactly in the sections where you would think to look, that um, I think it was like 2016, that nationwide in the U.S., conversion therapy was redefined. And then each state enacted that differently. And in Oregon, the redefined version of conversion therapy was illegal for minors. So it was really, the problem was that on a nationwide level, conversion therapy had been redefined. And I I had to go a circuitous route to find exactly what that meant. And that's when I started to worry. And again, I wasn't too worried for myself because I never, the word conversion does not belong with the word therapy the word affirmation doesn't belong with the word therapy either. I mean, if, you know, some <laughs> they're antithetical concepts. But that's when I started worrying about the trans rights activists coming after me, and then they did, and then the rest is history, and we can tell that story or not. I guess, well, yeah, we should no, because no, it's how I ended up. Let's really. In. Yeah. Yeah. But so what, what did you, re- what, so when you realized that there was a law that, you know, in a really quite secretive and roundabout way was um, maybe impacting on how you worked, what did you come away with the understanding of concerning what was allowed and what was not allowed? So one of the most concerning things about the redefinition is that the term conversion therapy is now equanimous with this acronym sexual orientation and gender identity change efforts. So Conversion therapy, if you look at the history of things that are called conversion therapy, and I think we should put therapy in quotes because this is not therapeutic, um, involved basically torture, right? Mm. Like, you know, like using painful shocks to try to decondition men's arousal to other men in response to visual stimuli, you know, and and what we learned is that, um, yeah, you can 
you can slightly decrease a man's attraction to other men by traumatizing him around it, but you can't increase his attraction to women. And these efforts, they're, they're harmful. They're based in homophobia. They're unnecessary. They've been illegal for a long time for a reason, and they never should have been called therapy in the first place. That's the history of what conversion therapy used to mean. Now, when you swap out that for sexual orientation and gender identity change efforts, well, you've just completely changed the definition of the word. What does change efforts mean? Here's an important distinction. Sexual orientation can't be changed. Gender (laughs) identity is incredibly mercurial, right? Mm. So you would never have a situation Okay, here's a situation that would never never occur. 15-year-old boy, it's becoming painfully apparent to him that he's gay, right? And he's discovering that because he has a libido and he can't mm-hmm. deny it. Anyone who's ever been a 15-year-old boy knows this. At 15, you know whether you're attracted to men, women, or both. Unless, you know, maybe you're deeply in denial, but sexual arousal is what it is, right? Goes to a therapist We don't see what happens in the six-month box of therapy. Goes behind a screen. Six months later, comes out therapy. He's like, you know what? I like girls now. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't happen. Can't happen. Right? Unless he's been brainwashed or traumatized or tortured. But is his body going to be physiologically aroused by girls? No. That's just not how it works. Okay? 15-year-old boy thinks he's a girl goes behind the curtain, the black box, six months of therapy, comes out the other side, doesn't think he's a girl anymore. Yeah, yeah. Did conversion occur? Did sexual orientation and gender identity change efforts occur? This is one of the reasons that it's so disastrous to lump those things together, right? Because sexual orientation is immutable. Um, This is a well-established fact. I mean, there are people who are bisexual where maybe they'll spend certain chapters of their lives more interested in one sex or the other. But if that's the case, you're probably bisexual. And if you're heterosexual, then then you can't force yourself to feel otherwise. And if you're homosexual, then you can't force yourself to feel otherwise. And no matter what your sexual orientation is, you also can't force yourself to feel attracted to people you're not attracted to. And you can't feel you can't force yourself to not feel attracted to people you're not attracted to. Now you can try to ignore mm. those people, but The point is that sexual orientation, it's immutable, and gender identity is this novel concept that cannot be proven. You can't, you know, put someone in an MRI and show them porn to determine what their gender identity is. Um, There's no such thing as a male brain or a female brain, Um, and it's, it's something that Right now, more than ever, uh, kids are playing around with and it changes week to week. So how are you going to have a law? I don't care what you think about gender ideology or the idea of gender identity, but, but how are you going to have a law where you simultaneously say that this thing that's impossible to change about a person and this thing that most certainly will change about a person, both of those are things that a therapist should not try to change? Right. It's impossible. It makes it impossible for us to do our job. And so what this ends up looking like in practice is that we become afraid to question at all, right? The standard Mm. of care is affirmation. And 
the risk is that if you do anything other than say, oh yes, you are exactly what you tell me you are, and we don't need to unpack that. I don't need to ask you where you first heard the term pansexual or genderqueer. I don't need to ask you what that means in your friend group or what you've seen on TikTok about this, or I don't need to ask you what makes you say you hate your breasts so much, or what makes you say it's so uncool to be a girl, or that you'd rather be you know, a trans gay boy than a lesbian or, you know, you do, you're you not supposed to explore any of this because what could happen? Well, is that if I ask you any of those questions and you don't like something that happens in our session, all you have to do as a consumer of mental health services, and you could do it at the age of 14, which like who among us is rational at that age? is go to someone's licensing board and wave your finger and say, she tried to change my gender identity. Mm -hmm, Well, now you've mm -hmm. just been accused of conversion therapy. You've just been accused of a word that used to mean giving someone painful shocks to try to decondition homosexuality. Mm. That's what you've just been accused of, except that's not what it means at all. It means that a consumer filed a complaint because something happened in therapy that for whatever reason they don't like. And things happen in therapy that people don't like. It happens all the time, right? And especially if you're getting close to the root cause of an issue and you're dealing with a very immature person, you're likely to spark a reaction. You know, could, could their gender identity be coming from shame about homosexuality, about sexual abuse, about autism, about any of the other things that we know are linked to higher rates of identifying as trans, right? Because if you start to unravel that with one of these kids, if you start to get close to what the actual pain point is, which is how awkward and lonely they feel, Well, it's normal that when you get close to the heart of an issue, you can trigger pain for a person. It's like pressing Mm. on a wound. Mm. And these kids are being given so much power. These kids who don't know what they're doing are being given the power to control institutions, teachers, parents, doctors, make everyone give them what they think they want right now. And that's developmentally not appropriate for these kids. And that's part of why we're seeing these behavioral issues is that they're freaking out because they have too much control and they don't know what they're doing. They're like toddlers at the wheel of a car and that Mm -hmm. car should not be in motion. And, you know, the adult needs to be at the wheel. But you have kids with too much power and control as it is who are too uncertain about their gender, this concept of gender. And now the power is in their hands to accuse a therapist who's trying to help them of efforts to change their gender identity. I hope you've been enjoying this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. If you like what you're hearing, now's a great time to like, subscribe, follow, rate, review, or share. You can also support the podcast by visiting sometherapist.com shop where you will find goods and services I've personally curated to support your well-being and enrich your life. We're just building the shop, so check back periodically and feel free to suggest recommendations. All right, now back to the show. 
Are there any safeguards built into the law of any sort, like any attempt to say what good therapy is or, you know, that responsible therapists will do this, that and the other, and that doesn't count as conversion therapy? I think we should take a moment to pull these laws up, if you don't mind. This is very interesting. This is a document um, from the American Medical Association, I presume. Um And it says, so-called conversion therapy refers to any form of intervention, such as individual or group, behavioral, cognitive, or milieu-slash-environmental operations, that attempts to change an individual's sexual orientations or sexual behaviors, sexual orientation change efforts, SOCE, or an individual's gender identity, gender identity change efforts, GICE. Practitioners of change efforts may employ techniques including aversive conditioning, e.g. electric shock, deprivation of food and liquids, smelling salt, and chemically induced nausea, biofeedback, hypnosis, and masturbation reconditioning. I want to stop right there because they're addressing what I was just saying, right? That in order to attempt to change someone's sexual orientation, you would have to use techniques like this and you would still fail. You would just traumatize Mm. someone, right? These These are... conditioning techniques that are trying to change behavior and how it's wired in the brain. But but what they're failing to see here is that gender identity is not a thing that people are, are attempting to change through any of these methods, and gender identity is much more malleable. So mm-hmm, here it says, mm-hmm. underlying these techniques is the assumption that homosexuality and gender identity our mental disorders, and that sexual orientation and gender identity can and should be changed. This assumption is not based on medical and scientific evidence. Professional consensus rejects pathologizing homosexuality and differences in gender identity. In addition, empirical evidence has demonstrated that homosexuality and trans and non-binary gender identities are normal variations of human identity and expression not inherently linked to mental illness— However, the unfounded misconception of sexual orientation and gender identity conversion persists today in some health, spiritual, and religious practitioners. Okay, according to the UCLA Williams Institute on Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity Law and Public Policy, as of 2018, almost 700,000 lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer-slash-questioning LGBTQ adults in the U.S. had received conversion therapy. In addition, an estimated 57,000 youths will receive change efforts from religious or healthcare providers before they turn 18 years old. A national survey of over 25,000 LGBTQ youth ages 12 to 24 found 67% of respondents reported that someone tried to convince them to change their sexual orientation or gender identity. Uh... 5% of respondents reported that they were subjected to quote-unquote conversion therapy. Another study found that nearly 18% of middle-aged and older men who have sex with men reported experiencing conversion therapy and then some racial inequity stuff. Okay, there's so many problems to unpack with this. Now, the only part of this that I can believe is this line right here. Uh, Nearly 18% of middle-aged and older men who have sex with men, reported experiencing conversion therapy. Here's how how I can believe this. Um, First of all, 18% is a believable number 
unlike 700,000, right? Mm-hmm. Um, middle-aged and older men, well, men in those categories were around back when conversion therapy, as defined by the, this aversive conditioning stuff, was actually being practiced, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, it was made illegal in like the 70s. So this is believable, right? That there are older gay men who were victims of a aversive conditioning before it was made illegal. But okay. So how they're defining conversion therapy here though is you know, how is it different from where it says that over 25,000 youth ages 12 to 24, which is really, really what we're talking about is the young folks right now, because they're the ones who are identifying into this category, found that two-thirds of them said someone tried to convince them to change their sexual orientation or gender identity. Now, I'm just going to throw out a wild guess here, but I'm guessing that these 25,000 LGBTQ emphasis on the T, right? Yeah, yeah. And that when someone tried to convince them to change, you're going to have a hard time convincing me that someone wanted gay kids to be straight. You're going to have a much easier time convincing me that these youth's parents and other appropriately concerned adults were worried that if they identified as trans, they were going to engage in medically harmful um, interventions that in my mind shouldn't even be legal because they're experimental and, and devastating to health. So this this is the danger of the redefinition of conversion therapy, right? Is they say that conversion therapy is this awful thing with use of aversive conditioning and masturbation reconditioning and hypnosis, right? These extreme physically invasive maneuvers to try to get someone to change something that's fundamental about them. Well, yeah, that would be true if we were talking about homosexuality, but if you're lumping it with this fluctuating concept called gender identity, and then you're saying there's no reason to change it, well, okay, here's why you might wanna consider being more flexible with gender identity. Because homosexuality can't be changed and there's nothing wrong with being gay. Being gay is not a danger to your health. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Being gay doesn't hurt anyone. Being gay doesn't cost anyone medical bills. It doesn't cost taxpayer dollars. Being gay doesn't require that the whole world agree that you're something that you're not. Being gay and just asking people to treat you with basic human decency that's just fundamental human rights. That's just natural variation, as they're saying, right? National Natural variation, right? Mm-hmm. So when it says empirical evidence has demonstrated, yes, I would agree that homosexuality is a normal variation of human identity and expression, that it's not a mental illness. Yes, we agree. But to lump in trans and non-binary gender identity and say that it's not a mental illness is to completely disregard the diagnosis of gender dysphoria and the fact that people are having mental distress that they're associating with the body that they're born with, right? The Mm -hmm. difference between Mm -hmm. homosexuality and gender identity is gender identity isn't just about identity or expression. It's about medicalization and it's about requiring the world to change its policies, to change how people use language, to change how people perceive you, to change what bathrooms 
you're allowed into, no matter how that makes other people feel. The thing I'm most concerned about, though, is the medicalization. You know, how can you say that it's not a mental illness and that it shouldn't be pathologized at the same time that you are asking people, and I'm going to look at you again now, Helen, (laughs) um, at the same time that you are asking people to uh, allow for the widespread permanent significant alteration of people's human sexed bodies so that they're no longer going to be able to reproduce or to have orgasms. You're foreshortening lifespans. You're causing permanent problems with bones, with the cardiovascular system, and just a whole bunch of cascading effects. So this is the danger of lumping these things together. They're not the same at all. And it's frankly, it's homophobic. It's an insult to gay people. Because gay mm-hmm, people are mm-hmm. not asking for any of this garbage, right? And they're mm-hmm, not asking mm-hmm. for the trans agenda to pile on with the gay rights movement. Conversion therapy was already illegal. And I've, you know, I do believe and I feel for the fact that there are older men who were subjected to these techniques, possibly linked with a religiously abusive environment when they were younger. But this isn't going on. All these statistics about how this is going on are really just numbers of people saying that someone in my life doesn't want me to be trans and leaving out the important piece of why might someone in my life not want me to be trans? Well, maybe because it feels like a lie to them. Maybe because my parents are worried that I'm going to be permanently infertile and a lifelong medical patient. Right. So all of that gets left out of this. And that's why it's so disastrous. This isn't the document I was looking for, but I'm really glad that but I found it. It's really this good. One. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So you mentioned that trans rights activists came after you. What mm-hmm. happened there? What was that about? Okay. So December 2021, I'm on Twitter and it's new to me. Um, so I haven't um, necessarily learned good filters and boundaries yet because you, you have to have those if you're going to be out in a place as wild as Twitter. And, um, you know, I was getting, I, I was excited to be part of dialogues though. I mean, I was kind of scared to come out as gender critical before I went on Twitter. I didn't know if I'd find like-minded people. I was having problems in um, Facebook groups for therapists where people were all very woke and very pro-trans and where there was really no room for any kind of dialogue. And, you know, so my first few months of Twitter were exciting because I was meeting so many like-minded people and having great discussions. I was in spaces and I was posting a lot and I was also blogging a lot and then posting my blog posts. So, At some point, um, well, at a few points, some trans rights activists found various things I'd posted on Twitter or on my blog. They saw that I was a therapist. And then, of course, they jumped to, she's a therapist, let's get her, right? Mm -hmm. So if, if someone's a therapist and they are in any way questioning anything about gender ideology, even from a reasonable standpoint like mine, where I've done my research, I've worked with this population, I care deeply for all people, including gender and sexual minorities, and I'm concerned about public welfare, I'm concerned about women's and children's rights, I'm concerned about the long-term health of people who think they want to be trans now, but might regret that down the line. Anyway, you know, they, they see that I'm a therapist, and then it's like, Let's get her on the conversion therapy thing, right? Because conversion therapy is illegal. And these are Twitter accounts that are anonymous, many of them. They have hashtag ban conversion therapy in their bios. They have protest signs with 
fan conversion therapy painted on them in their profile pictures. These are people who have really dedicated themselves to the mission of making it impossible for people like me to speak. People like me Mm -hmm. who actually know a thing or two about mental health. I mean, all of this is being done in the name of mental health. And there are people like me who work in the field who have professional qualifications saying, wait a minute, this isn't an accurate representation of how mental health treatment should work. So of course these activists have this agenda and they see me, they accuse me of conversion therapy. And I started getting these pile-ons where someone would, you know, screenshot or retweet something I said, call me a turf, a transphobic bigot. I've even been called a right-wing neo-Nazi and I've been called Marjorie Taylor Greene. And, you know, I've been called all the things. And it was like this, let's get her. And there were these kind of menacing comments where the tone was just like, aha, gotcha. We, d- you didn't know, bet you didn't know, you stupid turf, that we know that there's licensing boards we can report people to. That was the tone of it. It's very menacing. And so what I did is I got ahead of the game and I wrote my board directly. And I said, you're going to be receiving these complaints. Let me tell you what's going on. Let me tell you what I actually say and do and think and why you're hearing from these people. And you're going to hear from them again. I'm an open book. Let's talk. Right. I write I write that letter to my board. I send it. It's December 23rd when this is going on. So, of course, hmm. it's the holidays. All I hear back from the board at the time is I hear back December 27th that the, my letter was being forwarded to the compliance department. Um, then I immediately after writing that letter to my board, I write a letter addressing TRAs directly and it's called trans rights activists. Here's how you can report me to the board. And so I kind of diffused their game and I said, oh, you you think you got me? You think you (laughs) snuck up on me with this? You think that I didn't know that you could report me? Here's the link. Here it is, right here. And they weren't talking about actual therapy. They were talking about blog posts and things that you were tweeting. I mean, they had no evidence of any particular patient. Right. No, none of these people know anything about my my private practice. None of them are remotely related to any clients I've worked with. Um, I wasn't posting anything about individual patients. I was posting things about social trends and concerns that I have from a mental health perspective about what I'm seeing in the community. And so, and that's what my letter to them said. I was like, here you go. Here's the link. Have at it. But you should know that if you report anything that's not true, then you're committing a crime. This is a government agency. So all you can really report is that you don't like my online presence, which is what all your friends are already reporting. Okay. And then second of all, if you get what you want and I somehow lose my license over this, um, I'm a full-time writer and podcaster now. I'm going to reach a lot more people that way. So, you know, maybe that might backfire. And third, you know, if this escalates in court, I'm going to fight and I could win and I could actually maybe change the laws that you're trying to mm-hmm. use against me. So think carefully, right? That's what I put in my letter. And I was like, you know, I'm, I'm just not the right person to pick a fight with. And um, so I pinned that tweet to the top of my Twitter bio, and I also mega-blocked all the TRAs who were piling on, and it stopped. And I I could catch my breath because, I mean, I was, you know, getting a lot of this stuff coming after me, and I needed to do something to put up a shield, and that did it. And then it was crickets for a long time. I didn't hear from my board. There There wasn't too much drama with TRAs, or when there was, I would just block them instantly. And then one more thing happened. So while I was 
getting involved in all this, I was thinking, how can I help? Because once I started having this public presence, people started reaching out to me and asking me to help their kid or help them, people from all around the country, sometimes outside of my country. And of course, I had to say no to the vast majority of those people because I'm licensed to practice therapy in the state of Oregon. And with all of this heat, I decided I can't risk working with minors at all. I mean, parents want me to talk some sense into their kid. I'm not going to take that on. I was very clear about that in my communications with anyone who reached out to me. Um, I, you know, worked with a very limited number of families and uh, I decided really that where I could help most was with the parents. Now at the time I was feeling pretty busy, so I couldn't take on all the parents reaching out to me, but I decided to start a group, a support group for parents in Oregon who felt like their youth matched the description of rapid onset gender dysphoria. I started running that group in January, but between January and over the next few months, um, I went on vacation. I got COVID. So there were a number of interruptions. It wasn't, you know, weekly right from the start, but I, that group started in January. Um, parents were reaching out to me. The emails were all, you know, pretty standard. My son call, started calling himself a girl six months ago and, you know, stories like that. Um, and this one parent reached out to me, seemed pretty normal on the surface, came to one meeting ever, only one meeting. And um, was very emotionally um, dysregulated during that meeting. And the story didn't really make a lot of sense, but I just talked it up to, you know, this is someone going through a hard time. These parents are worried sick. That's It's normal for parents to be worried sick. Um, after attending this one meeting, this parent sent me a number of escalatingly aggressive and convoluted um, emails. Um, none of which I responded to. There was only brief, polite responses from my assistant who at first just said, well, sounds like there's a lot you need to talk about. Would you like me to schedule a one-on-one with Stephanie? Here's her hourly rates and her availability. That's all my assistant did. My assistant was just trying to help like, like office staff, right? And then she told my assistant she wanted a refund, which was easy because the money would never charge in the first place. She um, said, don't have Stephanie ever contact me again which I was happy to not ever contact her again. But then after that, she subscribed to my blog, um, went through my blog, left nasty comments wherever she could. Um, She found a comment, a a critical comment that a detransitioner had left on my blog. And she piled on that to the point where that detransitioner who has openly told me that he doesn't like me told me that he apologized for having any part in her piling on me and that he deleted her his comment because he didn't want to enable that kind of thing. Um, that's how bad it got. Um, she reached out to multiple personal acquaintances who were on my resource list and tried to slander my reputation to them. Um, and I know this because one of them contacted me and, uh, and then another I reached out to saying, hey, did you hear from this person? So this woman really went above and beyond in her attempt to destroy me after attending one group therapy session. And then she made a board complaint. I didn't find out about that until a few months later. Um, it was April 19th that I was notified that there was a complaint. This was a very busy time for me. I had moved April 15th. So by April 19th, we were, ju- you know, we just had the furniture in place and a few items on the walls. And I had just set up my new office, and now the first thing I had to do in my brand new office space was respond to board allegations. Um, I was also dealing with some health stuff, so it was a very busy time for me. And so what happened was that the board opened two cases at the same time. One was in response to the TRAs in December, and the other was in response to this one lady. 
they had separate case numbers. In their letter about the allegations from the TRAs, they said, please note, we did receive your letter dated December 23rd, 2021, and we'll take that into account. And so my response to that was pretty simple. I wrote a lot, but my lawyer helped me really cut it down to only the essentials. And, um, you know, they basically had no case. It's like, there's, you're asking me to prove a negative here to prove I'm not doing conversion therapy. Well, where is your evidence that I am doing conversion therapy, right? These are strangers on the internet we're talking about here. But, you know, the other lady, she, she was very sneaky, very tricky. She took concepts from my blog, ideas that I write about publicly, and she twisted them to insinuate that I was saying certain things to parents in groups that were, I, I would say, overreaches in how she frames my ways of dialoguing with people. And she brought another family into it. So, you know, the the f- one fortunate thing for me in this case is I've never had a board allegation in the six years that I've been licensed or in the three years before that, that I was an intern. And the one time I get a board allegation from someone who was technically a client, she was technically a client once in a group therapy setting where six other families were there and witnessed the same conversation. And none of those other families had a remotely similar experience to to her. I mean, many of those families come back week after week and say, thank you so much. You're so helpful. You know, I've, I've gotten feedback on what other people observed that day and nobody saw the same things that she did. But what had happened, and, you know, I have to say this in a way that respects people's confidentiality, but there was a family present who had really gone through something quite horrible with the mental health system. Um, Their kid needed a comprehensive mental health evaluation, and uh, their kid had basically threatened suicide to get into the hospital where they knew the hospital was going to affirm them and pressure their parents into affirming them and make the whole thing about gender, um, which Mm. is in itself a crisis. I mean, there are kids with a lot of stuff going on. There are kids with psychiatric comorbidities and family problems that need good old-fashioned family therapy and an unpacking an assessment of what is going on, right? But the kids are spending 10 hours a day on TikTok and they're framing everything as about gender. It becomes the the source of the battle with their parents. It becomes what everything is about. They don't want to talk about anything else. It's the ultimate form of resistance to therapy, but now it's like sanctioned by the powers that be. And, you know, this was a family that needed a a different type of help, but the kid had learned from their friends on the internet that you say this, that, and the other, you go to the hospital and they'll all be like, oh, how long have you known you're a boy? That's terrible that your parents don't affirm you at home. You're here because your parents are bigots. Okay, well, we'll make sure that before you leave, before we send you home, even though your parents are perfectly safe, even though they have a safety plan at home, even though your parents love you more than anyone, even though your parents have another take on what might be going on, before we send you home to those bigots, we will make sure that they will call you your chosen name and pronouns at home. Mm-hmm. That That is what the kids are learning. They can expect in the hospitals and that is what is happening. And that was what was happening with this family. And this family shared their story. And all I did was say, that is terrible. I'm so sorry that you feel backed into this corner. You feel like your, your kid is being held hostage by a hospital that isn't doing their due diligence and following the normal standards of care for how we would treat any other mental health issue in an adolescent. You know, I just said, 
that that was really hard and that the family had some very tough decisions to make. Like if the, if the hospital forces you to say in front of your kid, oh, yes, when they get home, I'll use these pronouns in this name and I'll buy this binder. And, I'll, you know, if the hospital forces you to say that in front of your kid, but that's not what you and your spouse believe in. You know, how do you handle that? What are you going to do when you get home? These are important questions to explore. And we talked about these things in group. And what happened is the lady who made the complaint used that family situation and used it to say that I had said that if a minor said they felt suicidal, that that meant they were being manipulative, which, you know, is an overstatement, but also it's irresponsible to say that that does that wouldn't happen. Right. Like mm. it's not it's not reckless taken out of context. You know, are there ever times that suicide is used manipulatively? Of course. Right. And now suddenly they're bringing suicide into the picture. Right. They're saying uh, and, and when you bring suicide into the picture, it's like it's like someone in the room has a gun. Everyone's being held mm. hostage, you know. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. so then the stakes become exponentially higher. And now you have to defend yourself against did I did I conduct, you know, mistreatment of a suicidal youth? I mean, that's like the worst thing you could do. Right. Because there's nothing worse than a dead kid. And this mm -hmm. is what's being mm -hmm. used to intimidate parents around the country. Would you rather have a dead kid or a trans kid? That's not the question that we should be asking. That's not at all. The, that's not remotely the right question, right? But did the parents maybe express some concern in group that their kid was using something that they heard online to get what they want? Is that what a kid does? Kids do do that, you know? And when it comes to a topic as complex and sensitive as suicide, I am aghast at how people are being so flippant about the conversation, you know, that the people are framing the suicidality of kids who are confused about gender stuff and, they're, and who have psychiatric comorbidities. They're using it to suit their political agendas and their narratives, and, and that's absolutely abhorrent. But what happened here is that the the suicide and the adolescent thing got used to kind of heighten the intensity of the allegation that I could be doing conversion therapy simply by talking to parents about their worries for their children. That's what that really strikes me as absolutely fascinating about this. You know, you weren't even talking to children and you weren't saying anything about trying to change a gender identity. And yet the existence of this law, this ill-defined law, that this ill-defined concept, change efforts about gender identity, turns it into a big investigation. So that was April, I think you said, that you heard about that. And I mean, that's serious. I presume you started to think about what will I do? What will I do if I, you know, get struck off? Yeah, it was like time to prepare for the worst case scenario, right? And I mean, if, if you have any compassion for me whatsoever, whoever's listening here, I mean, imagine that you are 37 and you're a therapist who's just kind of reaching the peak of your career. You know, you've been doing it long enough that you feel really confident in your practice. You're starting to build a podcast. You just moved in with your partner and stepkids. You're starting a kind of new, whole, whole new family life. And this thing that you've worked so hard to build, this thing that has been your source of income and the only reason you've ever achieved any degree of financial security is now being threatened because you care about kids because 
you're you're willing to believe parents who care about their children because you're aware that adolescents can't make good life long decisions because you yourself would probably be dead if anyone had let you make lifelong decisions at that age, right? You know, you're you're a therapist in the middle of your life, just kind of reaching this, this point where you feel secure and you feel like you're making a difference in the world. And then because you care, and because you care enough to say things that are hard to say in public that you know you'll get toasted for, like now everything you've worked for is potentially going down the drain and you have to look at what plan B and plan C are. And I was willing to die on this hill. There aren't that many hills I'd be willing to die on. This is one of them. This is about protecting children. Um, And it's very dear to my heart because I had a really rough adolescence and I have thought about it. And I know that if I had the same adolescence that I had, but in this environment where the way that people are talking about gender was the way it is today, I for sure would be one of these kids threatening suicide to get my testosterone and my double mastectomy. I would be that kid. I have all the markers of being that kid. So yeah, it's dear to my heart. I want to protect these kids. You know, I was willing to take that risk because I have the gift of gab. I'm a good writer. I'm a good speaker. And I was building my blog and building my podcast. And it's like, well, plan B, I'm a writer and speaker now. And I find a way to monetize my podcast. And, you know, I'm selling this house. So the money I used to sell the house, I used to that to get the next chapter of my life on my feet. But who wants to go through this? I mean, it was going to be a mourning process. I, I I needed to shed some tears about the idea that of giving up something I love. Like I'm good at being a therapist. I love being a therapist. I worked hard to get here. I work hard for my success. It would be a tragedy to not be able to practice anymore. I was willing to put that on the line and come out and make these statements and, and risk these allegations and run this parent support group and try to help these families knowing that I could lose this because it is that important. And because at the end of the day, I want to be able to live with myself. And if I'm going to be a good therapist, I also have to be a good role model of what it is to be a good human being. And that means being ethical and courageous. But yeah, it was hard. And the stress and the anxiety, I mean, it really impacted this whole chapter of my life. I was just landing in a new house with my partner and forming relationships with my stepkids. And now I have to hide my panic attacks that I'm having because my career is on the line from these stepkids who I'm trying to show up for as a stable role model and a a secure parental figure, you know? And now this beautiful space that I just moved into where I can do my work, I have to use it to defend myself in a court of law. And the partner who I'm delighted to be supported by, who's, you know, cooking meals for me and helping me with the chores, now I have to um, lean on his support, not for achieving our shared dreams, but for um, keeping me sane during during this time. And I, I leaned very heavily on him and leaned very heavily on all my resources. It took, you know, dozens of hours each week to be talking to my lawyer and writing and rewriting my responses and talking to all my supports and dealing with, you know, days that I couldn't do more than the minimum amount of work because I was just too anxious. Yeah, I mm-hmm. put myself mm-hmm. through this because it was worth the, the fight to me. But fortunately, the anxiety didn't last all that long. So I'll tell you how the investigation went. 
So I get this investigation notification. It's a password-protected email document. Well, two of them, one for each allegation, the ones from the TRAs and the one from the lady. And the way I first find out is uh, I actually, I see my phone ringing. I'm cooking a late lunch. I already have low blood sugar and I'm hungry and kind of shaky and I'm cooking a late lunch in the middle of a busy day. And I see my phone ringing and it says state of Oregon and my heart skips a beat. And I feel flushed and I'm having this like kind of vagal response. And I'm like, it's either the IRS or the licensing board. (laughs) Um, And I go and check my voicemail, which takes several minutes. And I'm just waiting for the voicemail to come through. And it's the investigator saying, you're under investigation and I'm sending you these password protected documents and here are the passwords. So, you know, had to hide my panic attack that day. Um, and then had to rally my resources. So fortunately, I feel like I'm I'm not a religious person, but I do have a sense of spirituality. And I feel like someone's looking out for me. Something is, you know, the universe is conspiring to help me because I had the right people to turn to. So um, I, the first two people I turned to for help, um, well, among the first two were Candace Jackson, she is a lawyer who is well-known for her work on these issues. And I had personally spoken with her before in Twitter spaces where we were acquainted with each other. So it was obvious to me that she was one of the first people I should contact. Turns out that her wife and business partner is a lawyer who was perfectly suited to help me, Patricia Campbell. So I got a lawyer right away, worked with my malpractice insurance to um, get coverage. And my lawyer even agreed to work with the rates that they were willing to compensate her with. Um, and then uh, Jake Wiskirchen from episode two of my podcast, um, uh, I interviewed him on You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist. He also interviewed me more recently on Noggin Notes, his podcast. And Jake is a licensed marriage and family therapist, a clinical supervisor, and he sat on the licensing board of the Nevada State um, Board for three years and was part of investigations. And he you know, was already totally on my side. And uh, so between Patricia and Jake, I had a lot of help. And I had my partner just there to hold me and hold me as I cry every step of the way. And um, what we did is we submitted written responses with um, lots of feedback from Patricia and Jake. Um, And then the investigator asked for an interview. We scheduled an interview um, on the phone. And um, at first it was kind of standard he was asking me questions to just confirm some really basic things and to ask me to disconfirm things. I'd already disconfirmed, but he needed to hear me say it. Um, A lot of the things were just, I could tell they were words straight out of this lady's own mouth. Like he asked, do you call yourself an expert in rapid onset gender dysphoria? That was one of the questions. And I laughed and it's like, that's not really my terminology. I don't go around calling myself an expert. Um, But he's, But the question was, do you call yourself an expert in rapid onset gender dysphoria? And if so, what makes you an expert? I said, well, no, I don't call myself an expert, but for your information, I've been studying this issue about 10 to 20 hours a week for the past two years. Um, (laughs) So, you know, there were questions like that where it was like, clearly this is, you know, her language, this lady's language. Um, But then he really started kind of digging in. And uh, one of the main problems was the conflation of my blog with my therapy practice, which gets into freedom freedom of speech issues. And how much of a responsibility does a therapist have to conduct every aspect of their life and any any business they might run, anything they might say publicly in a way that, you know, is not only like respectable, but that 
toes the party line and says exactly what the, you know, the consensus of the time says that a therapist should say. So he was calling into question, you know, the ethics of my having a blog that says any of these things. And I just had to keep reiterating, you know, my blog has like 400 subscribers and I have a lot of followers on Twitter. And, you know, I don't know if any of them happen to be clients of mine who are, you know, happen to be following my work online. Like, that's, you know, this, my blog is not for the purpose of marketing my therapy practice. I don't have to market my therapy practice. This is Oregon. We have such a need for therapists. I can just open and close my schedule as I desire. It's not about that. You know, this is about my expression. This is about my participation in a broader community. And, um, you know, I comment on things that are of interest to me and, and that's going to be influenced by my work as a therapist, but it's also expanding beyond that. So he was asking me questions, kind of, you know, pulling things from my blog and trying to indicate that, you know, that I somehow shouldn't be saying these things. And I just kept drawing that distinction. And uh, there were a few other kind of harrowing, annoying parts of the interview. And then after that, um, well, it, the other family came up, right? So as I had mentioned, this lady had uh, brought into the picture a family that was present at the group who had a child that had, had been hospitalized and had been mistreated by the hospital system. And so he asked for that family's name and I was kind of taken aback because I've never heard of, you know, if someone doesn't make a complaint about a therapist, how does the board have a right to look at someone's confidential notes if they didn't make a complaint? But I guess they do. And as soon as I questioned that at all, he was kind of stern with me, like, you know, indicating he read me some passage from the law indicating that I was like resisting compliance with their investigation. I'm like, no, I'm just making sure, like, just to confirm, you're asking me for the confidential information of someone other than the complainant. Okay. All right. Here it is. If you say so. And so I had had to hand over their records. Um, I still don't know to this day if he contacted that family or not. I, you know, was able to get some assurance from just knowing that family and knowing what they would say if he were to talk to them and knowing all the other families that I work with. And there was a part of me that wanted to be like, oh, you want to talk to parents, huh? Okay, here's all of them. Talk to all the parents. Yeah, Hear yeah. what they have to say. I mean, these parents are, you know, he was kind of implying in our conversation in the interview that I, that the families were vulnerable. Well, he asked, he said, do you consider these parents you work with vulnerable? And I said, well, of course they are, you know, but, but it, it was almost like the indication was that they're these, you know, sheep that I'm misguiding, right? And it's like, no, these are smart people, who are very passionate about what's bringing them to this group and they care a lot about their kids and they have some strong opinions and I'm here to hear them out and to be that one therapist that'll say, no, I don't think you're crazy, stupid, or bigoted. I believe you. And mm -hmm. this must be mm -hmm. really hard for you. And I'm so sorry that it feels like the whole system is stacked against you. So, you know, knowing the parents that I work with was, you know, part of what gave me some assurance that, it's really just this one lady coming after me whose perspective is very different from any other parents. Do you think she was deliberately trying to target you? So there's been some debate about that. You know, I've shared my story. Of course, I've never shared any identifying information about her. Although if someone's coming after me, I do have a right to protect myself. Um, I haven't shared any identifying information about her with anyone. But when I've shared the story, there are certain friends and allies who say, yeah, she was, you know, undercover. I, I don't know that. My read on her 
Um, and this is another thing they tried to peg me for. They tried to peg me for writing an article about how I was dealing with the harassment. I didn't specify anything in that article about who was harassing me because my audience knows I get harassed because I talk about this stuff. But I said I was being harassed. And at some point in the article, in a, in a long list of all the different cognitive behavioral and mindfulness strategies that I use to tolerate the stress of that, one I used, one I wrote about was discernment and recognizing other people's behavior patterns. And, and that can help you take things with a grain of salt. And in that, I said, you know, sometimes this type of harassment resembles something like borderline personality disorder. And if you're seeing an indicator that um, someone has a certain behavioral pattern, then that can help you take it a little less personally and protect yourself. So, you know, then they, the woman read that blog post after I had tried to block her from my blog because she was leaving so many nasty comments. I tried to remove her. She found a way to read that. Then she wrote in her allegations to the board, she wrote that I had diagnosed her with borderline personality disorder without her knowledge, which was not in her record. It was not ever discussed. This was after she'd asked me not to contact her, after I wanted nothing to do with her. I was writing for my audience after removing her from my blog saying, uh, you know, I turn lemons into lemonade. When difficult things happen to me, I write about them as my way of processing them. And I share gems of wisdom that come from that. And there's like 20 other strategies in here. And yeah, one of them has to do with discernment. And yeah, maybe I'm being harassed by someone who looks kind of borderline. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. that was what happened, right? But my read on it was more that way. That's how it came across to me. This is someone who is in deep pain and confusion. Right. Someone who probably has a behavior pattern of alienating everyone close to her. And I was seeing a lot of signs in in her various communications of paranoia. And, you know, to go from idealizing to devaluing me like that, to go from sending me an email one day like, oh my goodness, Stephanie, thank you so much for offering this resource for parents for, for this very affordable price. And then the next day, I can't believe you charge this much for your bad advice. I mean, that kind of you know, idealizing to demonizing flip out on someone and going to extremes to slander them, um, combined with everything else that she shared about herself and everything else that I saw, it just struck me as someone who, you know, probably does this sort of thing a lot. And it must be so hard because who, what does she want? You know, if, if on the one hand, she doesn't want people transing children and she's worried about her own kid, and on the other hand, the one therapist in Oregon who's publicly saying to parents, I'm so sorry for what you're going through. I'm here to listen. Um, you know, if she's going to come after the one person who's doing that because I didn't do it exactly the way she thought it was supposed to look. And now I'm a villain and now I deserve to have my license revoked. Well, that says something about the kind of person that we're dealing with here. And it's possible that they are, you know, a trans rights activist in disguise um, it's also possible that this is just her own disturbance and it's, it's a cry for help and it's impossible to respond to. I mean, it strikes me that as a therapist, you are, of course, going to be working with distressed and difficult people on occasion. And I mean, what's happened here is children have been given a way of thinking about things that, as you say, has taken away any boundaries from, you know, any way that Adults can set boundaries around them any way that adults can probe and question them at the same time as patients have been given these very powerful weapons that they can use against you, like, at will. I mean, you know, you were accused of conversion therapy by people who weren't even, uh, you know, seeing you for therapy. 
you were accused of converting children by an adult who came to a group session. And these things weren't just struck out. I mean, the board could just have said these complaints don't make any sense and not investigated yeah. you, but instead you were being investigated for, what, four months, three months, something like that? Actually, fortunately, it wasn't that long because it was it opened in April and then closed, I didn't write down the date, <laughs> early June. But well, it was this month. Yeah, it was this month. So it was really in the, within the last two weeks. Yeah, today right. is June 16th. And 16th, it was with, yeah. Yeah, so it was fortunately less than two months but like I said, it did, was... they, did they just write to you? Did they just write to you and say, it's all nonsense, you're free to get on with your job? <laughs> you know, I was talking to someone else the other day who said, so did the board just tell you this is absurd? And I was like, I would have loved to hear that from them. No, they, they were much more <laughs> official and measured in their response. I mean, so what happened to finish telling the story is that um, after that phone interview, we didn't hear back from him for a while. He emailed my lawyer saying he wanted to schedule a second phone interview, which was really disappointing because the plan had looked like he was going to present his investigation to the board June 3rd because he was not himself a therapist or a member of the board. He was a state investigator. His job was to collect information and then present it to the board and they only meet once a month. And so, you know, we were on track to get him all the material that he needed, including those records that he requested of that other family that didn't ask to be brought into this by the time he needed to present it to them June 3rd. But then within that week, he said something like wanting to schedule a second interview with me. We offered a time. He never got back to us. I was like, oh no, this is going to get dragged out. This is going to, you know, how am I going to find a way to enjoy my summer and all the other milestones and victories that I should be celebrating right now because I've got a lot going on, knowing that this is just looming over my head the whole time. It was going to have to be July. Um, didn't hear anything. And then... It was the week after um, the board meeting, June 3rd, that I was notified. Indeed, it was presented to the board June 3rd, and my case was dismissed. That was that was the word. It was just dismissed, and it said, thank you for your patience. That's what it said. It didn't say, we recognize this is fucking absurd and you're a hero, which would have been, you know, nice to hear after all they put yes. me through. <laughs> yes. Yes. How about, uh, you're a breath of fresh air, Stephanie. We love your podcast. We've learned a lot about gender <laughs> issues since, you know, <laughs> <laughs> no. So, what what do you what do you think um, you you take away from all this? I mean, apart from just the absurdity of it or whatever, but what should regulators be thinking that they should do in 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 trying to cope with this kind of wild west of gender medicine and gender therapy? Okay, here's my message to regulators. I don't know about the UK. You can confirm this. But I'm going to take a wild guess and I'm going to speak what I know about in the U.S. Good news. Conversion therapy is already illegal. Okay. These aversive conditioning, abusive tactics to try to decondition people out of their homosexuality are illegal and nobody's doing them. And if anyone is doing them, well, you already have a precedent for coming after them as you should there's no reason to try to change anyone's sexual orientation. Sexual orientation is innate. It's immutable. It's stable across the lifespan. It doesn't hurt anyone. It's a little inconvenient if you want your own biological children or if you would like to have a date, bigger dating pool. Um, that's it. Like, that's that's all it is. Maybe you have some internalized homophobia to work through. Maybe you have some family or, you know, community homophobia, but that's not your fault, right? That's something you can talk to a therapist about for help dealing with it and not letting it get to you, Okay. Gender identity 
should never have been lumped in with sexual orientation. Gender identity is not fixed or innate. It's a novel concept. Uh, Nobody's trying to change anybody's expression in, in the sense of, you know, I don't know any therapists who are judging people harshly for what color they want to dye their hair or how they want to dress or their mannerisms. I mean, any of these, you know, elements of how effeminate or masculine a person presents themselves in their mannerisms or style of dress, like that is not a thing that therapists are out to judge. And if there is a therapist who is really that abrasive and, you know, If there were like a male therapist who scoffed at a woman for wearing sweats and no makeup to therapy, well, then she would already, at least as far as the states go, tell me if I'm wrong when it comes to the UK, she would already be able to file a complaint. Like this therapist was being a jackass, right? That's just bad therapy. Okay, but that's not what this stuff is about. When they talk about gender identity change efforts, it creates this dangerous loophole where you can't talk about gender. And they they talk about it not being a mental or medical disorder. Well, it is kind of both because gender dysphoria is in the DSM. And what constitutes being a mental disorder is clinically significant distress or functional impairment. Any disorder in the DSM, in order for it to qualify as a disorder, you have to have clinically significant distress or functional impairment. So clinically significant distress would be, I'm so anxious about this, I can't stop thinking about it, I must talk to a therapist. Or functional impairment would be, I'm so depressed I can't get out of bed and go to work or feed my children. So if something doesn't cause clinically significant distress or functional impairment, then it's not a mental disorder. So if someone actually meets criteria for gender dysphoria in the DSM, it's because they're experiencing distress or impairment, which makes it a mental disorder. We should be concerned about that, just like we should be concerned with anyone who is experiencing distress. And if you're experiencing distress because of the body you're in, then that's a problem, right? We should all have the birthright of being comfortable in our own skin. These medical technologies are being sold as a false bill of goods that quote unquote affirming someone's gender through cross-sex hormones or puberty blockers, surgeries, and the like, uh, they don't make people more comfortable in their skin. What they do is they cause people physical pain and further impairment, and they increase the likelihood of all kinds of diseases. They set people up to be lifelong medical patients, and you're not treating the real issue, which is about getting more comfortable in your skin, which we can do non-invasively. There are many ways of helping people who are experiencing gender-related distress. Traditionally, gender distress was only exhibited by a small number of boys, and now it's in a huge number of adolescent girls. And that is socially influenced just like any other phenomenon with adolescent girls throughout human history. The good news is that this is transient. Most kids, before this became a social contagion, most kids who had organic, naturally occurring gender dysphoria would grow out of it and discover that they were gay. And now what we're seeing with the kids who are going through this because of peer influence is that there's comorbidities with all kinds of other mental health problems, especially autism, um, as well as it's frequently uh, because of home internalized homophobia, internalized misogyny, or a result of sexual abuse that made someone feel uncomfortable with their body. There's no reason, according to, to any of the best practices of psychology or medicine, there's no reason to lock that dysphoria into place by insisting that everyone should affirm this identity and then enrolling the medical system and wasting medical resources 
doing things that have that have a high risk of harm and high likelihood of regret. And we're seeing this with detransitioners. Detransitioners themselves are saying, I wish I hadn't done this. I wish someone had stopped me. I wish a therapist had explored this with me. Well, guess what? If you enact a law that conflates efforts at changing gender identity with efforts at changing sexual orientation um, and makes both illegal, then therapists cannot feel the freedom to explore all the various reasons that someone might claim some kind of gender identity. And if we can't explore those reasons, we can't get to the root cause of the distress, we can't find out if there's an easier way of treating it. And there is. You know, there's this myth that if kids don't get these puberty blockers right away, they'll kill themselves. That's because people told kids that. People told impressionable, vulnerable, naive youth that if you don't get this thing that didn't even exist 20 years ago, if you don't get it, you're going to kill yourself. That is child abuse. Telling children that is child abuse. And intimidating adults into caving is manipulative. Kids were not killing themselves because of lack of puberty blockers. What, we're, what, we're, what we really need to be concerned with here is that people who are kids today might kill themselves 10 or 20 years from now when they're dealing with transition regret and lifelong medical complications. With puberty blockers, you're looking at major problems with bone disease, osteoporosis and osteopenia, weak teeth, this can have a crippling effect on people's functioning. It can stop them from living their lives, from enjoying normal human activities. It can give them debilitating chronic pain. Those are real risk factors for suicide. I lost a friend to suicide. He was a therapist. He was 40. He killed himself, and I don't want to oversimplify this issue. I hate it when people oversimplify suicide and we can't read the minds of the dead, but my friends believe that it had to do with chronic illness and disability. We are currently inducing chronic illness and disability in kids who would have otherwise been healthy by taking the social idea, something called gender identity that we made up, that we made up and telling kids that now you need to stop puberty as if puberty is traumatic. Well, it's lowercase t traumatic for all of us. Distress needs to be normalized. Kids need, uh, kids need to know that there are other ways of making it through. This is general. That's amazing. This is general <laughs> parenting advice. This is general therapy. I mean, okay, here's a story. The other day, my 10-year-old stepson hurt himself. Um, we, were, we were working on a project around the house. He was playing with a drill, and he drilled into his hand. Now, drilling into your hand could be a major injury or a minor one. It's scary. It hurt him a lot. But it wasn't major, thankfully. That's one of those things that could really go either way. Now, his pain signals in his body were screaming that this is an emergency. So, of course, he was screaming and crying and freaking out, as you do. I probably would have been screaming and crying and freaking out, and I'm an, an adult. It was our job as the adults to inspect the wound, you know, to comfort him, to inspect the wound, clean it, bandage it, and, you know, give him ice, give him Tylenol. So I'm down with a cozy blanket and some tea. And we were the ones who had the eyes on that who could say, this really hurts, but it's a superficial injury. Good news, we don't have to take you to the ER. You know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's the role of adults. We're the ones who see a kid's distress and interpret, is this a crisis or is this solvable? Is this a big problem or a little one, right? You don't just agree with what 
a confused adolescent says. A confused adolescent's freaking out because they don't feel comfortable with puberty. Did you feel comfortable with puberty? Who among us felt comfortable with puberty? The problem is these kids are being told that if you don't feel comfortable with puberty, it's a crisis. These kids are being told Mm -hmm. that if you don't fit in with other kids or you don't like this or that or whatever, that it's because of being trans and they're getting tons of social incentive for it. Kids who were nerdy, geeky, awkward, bullied, now they're cool, okay? So it is so wildly irresponsible to force these vulnerable children to live with the consequences of this era for the rest of their lives. This is not gonna age well. This is going to look really ugly in retrospect, just like lobotomies and so many other things that we've been embarrassed by in human history. So it's wildly irresponsible to set up the medical system and the mental health care system in a way that kids don't have any option of just meeting with a a level-headed adult who says, oh, that is so, so tough to feel awkward in your body. Tell me about it, right? You need to be able to talk about it. You need to be able to ask questions. And the laws that are banning, quote unquote, conversion therapy are not necessary. Nobody is engaging in harmful, abusive tactics to try to make people change things that are unchangeable about themselves. What people are trying to do is they're trying to safeguard children. They're seeing that these are novel medical experiments that are unnecessary and that have high rates of harm and risk and regret that sterilize children, that prevent them from experiencing orgasm. I mean, if you're looking out for the long-term best interest of children, think about what makes for a healthy life. Thinks about what make think about what makes you want to keep going. It's the ability to feel healthy and to enjoy your favorite activities and to have relationships with your loved ones. Maybe it's playing with your kids. Maybe it's having sex with your partner. These are all things that we're going to take away from children if we go with this whole hormones and puberty blockers thing. We're going to leave them with disabilities. We're going to leave them with the ability, without the ability to reproduce, without the ability to enjoy loving sexual relationships with people. And that's what's going to increase their risk of suicide. You should never tell a kid, you should never tell anyone, but especially not a vulnerable, impressionable kid, that they are going to kill themselves if they don't get what they want. That is not good mental health advice. It's never been our job to tell people that. It's always been our job to say, no matter what happens to you, how people treat you, what kind of opportunities or pitfalls come your way, I believe in your resilience that you can find a way to make your life meaningful and enjoyable. And no matter how shitty other people are to you, no matter what happens in your life, you don't have to kill yourself. And we also have a responsibility to assess suicide risk properly. There are many factors that can make suicide risky or not along a spectrum. And, you know, this kind of carte blanche using of the threat of suicide to push this agenda that's only going to increase suicide risk in the long run is terrible. So here's another thing that really needs to be described. Um, The left hand does not know what the right hand is doing. Everyone who hasn't woken up to what's happening yet thinks that kids are actually getting assessed properly and that there's some standard of care being followed there. But what's actually happening is that therapists are either taught in the gender-affirming model or they're taught to refer to gender clinics. In either way, if if the kid is seeing a therapist who's practicing the affirmation model or they're referred to a gender clinic, the, the starting point is that what the kid is saying about their gender must be true. Mm-hmm. It's it's never, let's conduct an assessment and figure out what's really going on here and if the kid actually meets the normal clinical 
picture of gender-related distress that's, you know, severe and persistent and yeah, nah, 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 nah. Plus, kids are being told on the internet what to say about their gender distress anyway to get what they think they want, what's glorified on the internet. So there is a myth that there's a, a thorough assessment being done. Usually comorbidities are not diagnosed. If they are diagnosed, the way they're framed clinically is that these comorbidities are secondary to gender, that gender is the main problem, and that the kid has developed these other problems because of their gender-related distress or their bigoted family or fill-in-the-blank. So the standard of care that you might think is happening is not happening, and it's happening because af the affirmation model is the norm and because therapists are afraid of losing their licenses over allegations of conversion therapy. So if you think that there should be any alternative for kids who think that they're trans, for kids who think that they're trans, which they could have heard that anywhere, they could have any number of reasons for thinking that. A lot of them are social. And a lot of them are just, they don't have a complete understanding of their own psychology and who would, they're, they're kids. You know, if you think that these kids should have any alternative besides adults just agreeing with them and then giving them drugs and surgeries that will make this permanent for the rest of their lives, then, then you, you cannot enact these conversion therapy laws. You have to leave it safe for therapists to explore this without fearing losing their license. Few therapists will take the risks that I've taken. If every therapist who worried about this took the same risks that I'd taken, then our laws in the U.S. would be different. We would have changed this by now. But there are so many families that cannot find appropriate therapy for their kids because every therapist is just going to do nothing but affirm. It's really disastrous mm -hmm. for mental health. And just think about the blood on your hands, that the, the, the incredible amount of guilt and remorse and regret that you will feel as an adult if you participate in something that turns out to be what it looks like this might turn out to be, what time will tell. If you listen to stories of detransitioners now and how they feel mutilated and how they feel betrayed, by the adults who are supposed to protect them. You know, magnify that. Imagine that all the kids who are transing now at the age of 15 are going to feel that way at 25. How are you going to feel about the role that you played in that? You know, I as a therapist feel that I have a responsibility to maintain some credibility in my profession because the people who are going to need the most therapy are the ones who have been scarred by gender therapists. So we have to keep options open for people who will desist and detransition, for people who want alternatives, for parents who feel that they've been lied to and mischaracterized. That was very powerful. <laughs> I don't have anything else to ask you, and I think we've got loads. I mean, we've I think that works loads, really, yeah. really well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, you, you probably have been dying to get all of this out. It felt really hopefully. good. I didn't know. I didn't know I was going to have an opportunity to say to to, to Helen Joyce. <laughs> I thought I was maybe going to do an episode with my friend Jake to recap what just happened. But uh, but this is awesome oh. that, that this story can come out in a time that it can actually help you with what you're doing in the UK. I'm so excited. To yeah, hear definitely. It it's a real. It's a really really crucial moment. You know, the government got rid of the conversion therapy bill. It just said, look, you know, we've decided there isn't any necessity for this. And then there was this rear guard action, and it got put back in just for sexual orientation. And, you know, you could say, oh, well, the sexual orientation one won't do any harm. It won't do any good either, because exactly the same here. There isn't. 
There isn't any conversion therapy going on, exactly like you say. They can't find any. They've looked. Um, it's all historic. And anyway, again, we also have laws to stop it if it were to start again. And now there's this effort to tag back in the gender identity. And it's quite a strong mm-hmm. effort because it sounds good, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. You know, it sounds like the sort of thing that you would do. Mm-hmm. And you, it's very hard for politicians to vote against something that sounds so right. Yeah. And actually, yeah. I would say that most politicians know there's no need for it. They've got that. They understand mm-hmm. that this is just virtue signalling. But politicians mm-hmm. virtue signal all the time. And they're fine with it. If it's not going to do any harm, they don't see the problem. So you've actually got to persuade them, that's what we're trying to do, that you think this is good, but actually it's really, really bad. Like you said, yeah. blood, blood will be on your hands. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, there's this whole lobby that's been whipped up to believe that this is the worst thing that's happening today in mental health. That children in large numbers are being tortured by massive, massive bigots. And so politicians who are brave and who vote against this you know, have an organised lobby group or organising letter writing against them, trying to get them voted out, protesting outside parliament, all this sort of thing, you know. It's quite extraordinary the way that this has become such a talismanic issue when we never heard about it. We never heard about gender identity until recently. We certainly didn't hear about conversion efforts on it until just the last few years. And here we are, you know, that this is meant to be the civil rights moment of our times. But yeah, so, I mean, with a bit of luck, they'll just decide that there isn't enough time for this bill. And every year that goes by, or every day that goes by, actually, you see the harms more. So that's the hope, to delay it until it becomes clear that actually it was a really bad idea, and then it just never comes to the vote. Because if it comes to the vote, I'm worried. I'm worried that it will happen. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast with Stephanie Wynn, LMFT. This podcast is produced by Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix. Special thanks to the talented musician Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. At SomeTherapist.com, you can find more information on any topic, guest, resource, product, or service you've heard of here today. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at SomeTherapist. If you would like to ask a question, suggest a topic, be a guest, or invite me to speak, you can email us at hello at sometherapist.com. You can also send us a voice memo with your question, and we just might play it. Of course, just because I'm some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, Get outside and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.